to be honest, unfortunately, in the startup community, there is a huge element of kind of hustle porn, you know, if uh, if you're not working 18 hours a day, you're not really trying. Hi there, you're very welcome back to All In, your weekly business show here on Joe, backed by AIB. Today, we're looking at the working week. The Monday to Friday working week is something of a business institution for most of us, but could tweaking the nine to five daily grind lead to increased productivity, success, and happiness all around? We're asking a man who invests in people, companies, and the teams behind them, VC investor Brian Caulfield, and the managing director of one of Ireland's best known recruitment firms, CPL's Lisa Holt. And in this week's Trailblazer interview, we're investigating the link between science and success. Barely two years ago, our 19-year-old guest won the BT Young Scientist exhibition in the RDS. Now he's celebrating a seven-figure seed round of funding from investors like Sequoia Capital. It's Evervault founder Shane Curran. But before all that, why not wander over to our dedicated Twitter account at allin underscore business, where you'll find a pinned tweet with all the details of our upcoming live show. It's on the 29th of October in the Chocolate Factory on Kings Inn Street in Dublin. And we'll have some of our many regular contributors there, including Maximum Media founder Niall McGarry and East Coast Bakehouse boss Alison Kowser. You don't want to miss that. We're also, of course, on LinkedIn, on Facebook and on YouTube. And why not hit subscribe to get the full show on podcast every week so that you never miss an episode. Joe presents All In, together with AIB, backing Irish business. So, Brian, Lisa, the working week, obviously it's undergone a lot of changes in the last few years. More changes yet to come? Possibly. I think the thing about the working week is there are no shortcuts to delivering a strong week in work. But I think it is evolving to become a much more flexible place and it needs to be a more flexible place. So I would I would advise people, hiring people, have the trust and faith in your staff to offer flexibility. But I'd also advise staff and people in business, particularly those starting off, take that trust very seriously and you know, it's give and take. That's what it really comes down to. Mm. And what do you think, Brian, in terms of the companies that you invest in and the evolution of the working week there? What's driving the appetite for change, do you think? Is it tech? Is it? Well, I, I think it's primarily tech. And I mean, mm. I think when people talk about the way the tech is changing the working week at the moment, there's a lot of talk about, uh, if you like, AI and the implications of AI. In actual fact, I think that's not really the big issue at all in terms of what's really changed the working week. It's communications technology and the way in which we're now, you know, literally always connected to everybody on the planet, you know, through 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 mobile devices. That's the thing that's really changed the working week. And where do you think it's going to go next in terms of uh, when I'm not here, I'm with Web Summit. And one of the major things at all of our conferences is uh, a conversation around future of work. And I always notice this division while Half of people want to talk about, I want to be able to work remotely, I want flexibility, I have young kids, I want to get home in time to put them to bed. Then the other half of the world is touting 996, you know, 9am to 9pm, six days a week. So there seems to be this huge divergence there. I wonder what accounts for that and how there can be any harmony between the two. Well, I I think, you know, Web Web Summit is probably not the place that you're going to see the kind of broad mass of humanity. It's very much kind of a a self-selecting group. And, 
to be honest, unfortunately, in the startup community, there is a huge element of kind of hustle porn, you know. If uh, if you're not working 18 hours a day, you're not really trying. And, you know, I have to say, I think that is... That's foolish. It's really bad for people's mental health. In the long term, it's not good for productivity. But unfortunately, it is a thing, particularly in the startup world. Um, I think the reality for most people is that the future of work is going to become more flexible. It is going to become less place centric you know you're you will be able to do your job from anywhere um i've been regularly touting the example of a company in dromore called nearform which has 40 people in dromore and 100 people scattered across the world like literally no other offices other than the office in Dromore and those people are perfectly able to do their job you know working from home working from a co-working space if that's what they want to do uh, working hours that may fit in with you know other aspects of their life you know mm -hmm. and i think that's actually you know, m much, much more the kind of the real underlying trend for the vast majority of people rather than, you know, I, I, I believe that the working hours in North Korean labor camps are 112 hours a week, you know. I don't think we should be holding that up as a yeah. model for entrepreneurs <laughs> or anybody else for that matter, you know. And what about you, Lisa? Because I know CPL introduced a new kind of flexibility working programme yeah. in the last while. Was that due to demand? Yeah, I think also to attract the best, you have to offer the most innovative benefits. And it's funny, when it comes down to people, money does matter. But actually what matters is flexibility, the option to work in hours that suit people, the fact that, you know, they're learning and developing and growing and being challenged, that's what matters to people. But in my experience, I've managed to give in, within the divisions I work in CPL, I have a couple of ladies who are, I have one girl who's a single mum, she's a Down syndrome teen. She was going to leave. So I said, no, let's work it. Let's make this work. You can work from home. Mm. She comes into the office once a quarter. Her performance has gone through the roof. She's happier. Um, and other people as well. People have long commutes, you know, and it's tough going. I have one myself um, and I make the most of that commute. So this morning I was in the car. I scheduled to call someone at half seven because I know that she's in her car at half seven. So it's about playing to people's strengths. And it's also about ensuring people understand guidelines because, you know, people will take if you give. Mm. So whenever I offer flexibility, I do it within fairly straightforward guidelines that are easy to follow. And if they're not followed, it's taken back because you've got to be able to deliver. Like our clients are on from eight in the morning till eight at night. So my kind of feeling is that my team, someone in my team has to be available from that in those times so we can service the clients. And how do you gauge, especially with new employees, how do you gauge who is trustworthy in that regard or is it a trial and error see what happens situation well, I, I would have fairly strong antennae as the guys in work would tell me but mm. it really is output so it's it, the amount of interviews that you have your candidates out doing you know you can you can send out cvs till the cows come home that doesn't matter it's about you partnering with the right candidates 
going on the journey with them, getting them to interview and consulting right through to when they accept the job and they've started. So I would gauge my interviews, really. That's how for people particularly starting out. But actually, it doesn't matter. You know, someone could be in the business seven years, could be really highly skilled. And again, some curveball could come at them in their life. They could have a sick parent, an elderly parent, a sick child. And, you know, it's about judging what matters to that person at that time and nearly proposing it to them before they've had a chance to get start fret and worry about it. Mm. Because when people fret and worry, productivity drops. And in these situations where, um, I mean, maybe it's a startup versus a corporate thing. I mean, I, I'd imagine a lot of corporates have rigid guidelines. They wouldn't be expecting eight to 20 hours a week, whereas some startup cultures can lean towards that. Um, but in either in either area, how do you prevent against exhaustion and burnout? Because anyone doing those kind of hours, if you're doing 18 to 20 hours a day, yeah, I mean, not sustainable. I know certainly in CPL, we offer a lot of mental health uh, awareness. We do our very, very best to stay close to people who are struggling. The facts are, if you overdo it, you will burn out. So I think it's a big onus on management and company owners today to watch out for that in their staff. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think if you're if you're a leader, you need to be concerned, not just with, you know, if you like short term productivity or whatever it is, you, you need to be concerned about the, the, you know, the health and development of the people in your team, yeah. because that's the thing that will enable you to succeed over the long term. So you need to be watching for that. You need to be telling people, you know, take a holiday, you yeah. know. And you, you very famously didn't take a holiday for about seven years, Brian, that's and burned out. very true. Out. In, in my first startup, I, uh, I started the business early in 92, went away for a week to Portugal in May of 92 and didn't take another holiday until September 1999. And I, that is absolutely pure foolishness, mm. right? It didn't do me any good mm. and it almost certainly didn't do the team or the business any good either, you know. Mm. Um, what so, were the effects for you, like the... The health well, effects even. Well, I, I, I tended to work a lot of hours, took very, very little exercise. My back got to a point where it was so bad that I had to, uh, I mean, I remember on one occasion I was on a flight in the US and the flight was delayed leaving and my back was so bad that I had to ask the air crew could I lie down somewhere to do some stretching exercises? Mm. So I was literally lying down in the air bridge doing stretching exercises to, to, to try and re relieve uh, relieve my back, you know. Was that a wake-up call um, for you? That was a wake-up call. And, you know, I, I'm now actually kind of militant about doing stretching exercises for my back literally every morning. You know, part of my morning routine is... Like I have breakfast and then I do these stretching exercises. I do an awful lot more exercise. And I think for both for leaders and, and in terms of your responsibility to your staff, you, you need to be thinking about, you know, appropriate working hours, making sure people take holidays, encouraging people to, to exercise and encouraging people to have a life outside of their work life, you know. And I have to say, increasingly, 
I lose respect for, you know, leaders of startup companies who think that it's okay to push people to work 16 hours a day. You know, I, I just, I don't think that's right, apart from being counterproductive. Okay, and what what do you think about that, Lisa? Because um, I'm curious, obviously you represent one side of the relationship between employers and employees, but yeah. what would you do if you had an employee maybe who, someone who'd been with you before and they were coming under pressure from a boss to do those kind of hours? Yeah, I mean, look, I think holidays, you've said it there, they're probably the most important thing. And you can see when someone hasn't taken a break. And I think employees today need advice and coaching on to how on as to how to handle a tough manager who has too much expectations. Mm. Because I've seen people so articulately, so smartly push back. And I mean, I'm, you know, I expect a lot from people. There are no shortcuts. The job has to be done. But I expect them to work very, very hard in the core hours and if necessary to put in an hour at home if a candidate is doing an interview the next day. But I'd be watching people and I've often said to people, look, just have the conversation, sit down, say, this doesn't work for me. I I just can't perform under that level of expectation. Mm. Also, happy people are better people in work. So if they're able to give their family their time, if they're getting their exercise, if they're getting their fresh air, if they're playing their soccer and they have their extracurricular in, you know, interests outside work, they're happier in work, they're more productive, they have more fun and it's a much healthier atmosphere. Yeah. And what about work um, contactability, I suppose? Look, it's Are there hours where you would expect people to be very much on or no, when can you switch off? No, um, I mean, again, our business is unpredictable time-wise. Somebody could be doing an interview at 7.30 in the morning. Mm. You'd like your, your best people to check in with somebody the night before at half seven via text or email. Are you ready? Do you know where you're going? Do you know exactly where Fishamble Street is? And just to, that extra little touch goes a long way in our, in our job. But honestly, I have no expectations for anybody to do anything unreasonable. I just want them to do the best job they can. Mm -hmm. And on a day where they need a bit of flexibility and they have to go early to take a child home from school who's unwell, perhaps they could check in later for an hour or two to make up that time. But it's about educating people and coaching people to push back in a courteous and respectful manner that actually makes the boss sit up and go, no, they're right, actually. That was too much to expect. Okay. And... Actually, Brian, um, I'm, just, I'm just reminded of Ray Nolan's famous uh, other end of the extremes, two-hour working week or two to four-hour working day, rather. Mm, what would yeah. you think of that? I mean, I don't think that's going to sit well with most bosses, well, is it? I think, Ray, well, Ray is obviously in a special position insofar as he's been enormously successful, has, you know, has made a lot of money and, and therefore can very much choose what, what he, he wants to do personally. But, but he will tell you very openly that he kind of feels like he's only got two really good hours in him each day, you know. And, you know, th- there's probably a lot of truth uh, uh, in that in terms of two hours of kind of peak productivity. Mm. I think you also need to understand, though, that different roles have different requirements, you know. So, I mean, actually, the sort of the 40-hour working week uh, evolved essentially during the Industrial Revolution, where suddenly you had artificial light, which meant that your working time was not constrained mm. by by daylight. 
And you also had machines, which were an asset that you needed to sweat, you know. So you kind of needed to have people at those machines, ideally 24 hours a day, operating the machines, you know. And that's a a kind of a type of work that does still exist in some environments where, you know, people do have to be present for very, very fixed hours. But the number of occupations where that's going to be the case, uh, you know, is dropping fast and is going to continue to drop. So we need to recognize that it's it's kind of it's not one one size fits all. You know, it is it is about flexibility and it's also about recognizing the different individuals you know, are, are are effective in different work structures. I mean, there are people out there who really like to have a very contained eight hours. Yeah. When I finish my eight hours, I walk away and it's over, it's done. And and that's fine. And and we need to kind of make sure that we 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 place those people in roles that are compatible with a kind of a work style that works for them rather than forcing them into something that, that that's not going to work for them or, or for the business. And some people would hate to work from home, I think, as well. You know? yeah, yeah, people yeah. get lonely at home. Yeah. Like I have a couple of people who I would say, well, look, do you want to try it? And no, I don't, I don't get motivated at home. I need to be around the team. Yeah. Yeah. And for you guys then, what would you say uh, your peak productivity, what, what does that look like for you? If it's two hours for Ray Nolan, what is it for Brian Caulfield and Lisa Holt? Gosh, I, I, I don't know either. I maybe see myself through rose-coloured glasses, but I feel very productive all of the time. Um, I need my sleep. That's my big thing. Um, like I'd often be asleep by nine o'clock at night. Mm. Um but once I sleep, burn bright but short. Yeah, that? yeah, I really do need that. And I have a nine-year-old, so I love to go home and cuddle him. And I often fall asleep with him. Mm-hmm. But I definitely feel that if I'm busy um, and I have a lot to do, I get through it. And I'm a real believer in don't put off till tomorrow what you can get done today. Mm-hmm. You know that level of procrastination can also leave us in a bit of a mire. Um, but probably, if the truth be known, if I was analysed by some productivity consultant, I'm sure he'd tell me four to five hours are my peak. Mm. But I, I, I'm very responsive and I love to I love to engage and get the result. So that means that I can be on a lot of And you of love the time. what you do though as well, don't Absolutely, you? Absolutely, yeah. I mean that I a factor it energizes Brian, you. Absolutely. Twenty three years doing the job I do. Now my job has changed and I'm very lucky. I've been given a lot of challenges and new paths on the way um, by my boss and I really have loved and thrived in that and I try and give that to my people. But yeah, you've got to love what you do. If you don't love what you do, go and find something that you love and you'll never look back. Okay, what about you, Brian? Let's go back to that peak productivity for you. I'm I'm probably a little bit more erratic, you Mm. know. I I would say I work in, in bursts where I could be incredibly productive you, you know, maybe for several days, you know, and um, certainly when I was younger, if it needed to be done, the idea of kind of keeping working right through a, a night didn't phase me. Mm. Now, uh, it's not a smart thing to do, and I'm absolutely not recommending it, but 
I, I would say I'd have kind of the, these bursts of energy where I can work incredibly productively for a period of days. And then I probably do actually slump a bit mm. and and kind of uh, veg, need you know, and need, need a holiday. Yeah, yeah. Need, 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 need some downtime. Um, I think the thing for me that tends to be a big driver of productivity productivity is actually people you know when you're working with really good people and you know that that creates a fantastic energy for 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 me personally and you know going back to what you were saying earlier I really don't like to work from home you know Mm. if I was work working from home all the time I'd be distracted. I kind of say, "Hey, um, oh, it's it's uh, it's dry out. I'll cut the grass, or, or put the clothes I, on the yeah. you know, or, put or exactly <laughs> put, put put the clothes on the line." Um, but but beyond that, you know, there's there's nobody around, and yeah. uh, I I'd miss the energy of uh, of people, you know. And one thing I want to touch on with you, Brian, is. Um, AR. I know you, you're a big believer that AR in particular, augmented yeah. reality, is going to change things for the yeah. work week in the years ahead. How do you see that panning out? So I, I think when people think about augmented reality now, everybody has seen the kind of the amazing videos uh, from Magic Leap of, you know, whales emerging from basketball courts and splashing back down into the basketball court. Um, the the real uh, kind of, if you like, the, the amazing things that will happen with, with augmented reality, though, are not just those kind of things. I mean, augmented reality glasses will enable us to project the image of a video screen directly into the eye, right? So you won't need a monitor. Mm. You know, you put on your magic leap glasses and a screen is there in front of you it's absolutely perfect it's as big or as small as you want it to be and not only that but a keyboard is being projected into your uh, into your eye as well you can now literally work anywhere you know with no equipment because Mm -hmm. everything is in the cloud so we're already much less place dependent from a work perspective. That's going to become even more extreme. Um, the other thing that augmented reality will enable us to do is literally put people in a room together, even though they're thousands of miles apart, you know. And it's it's a huge leap beyond existing video conferencing technology. Mm. So when you think about what that's going to mean, you know, should we short airlines, for example? You know, is that the way to play this 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 trend from uh, from an economic perspective? And for you, then, Lisa, I guess that's something you guys in recruitment will have to be catching up with very very quickly. Are there plans yeah. in place already, or discussions on how to deal with the? Yeah, a I scenario mean, we, like that in the future constantly have to evolve that way because the demands for speed of access to candidates never ever stop. So, I suppose artificial intelligence would be the big thing at the moment. And what we're finding is the recruiters, because they've less time finding the person, they've more time to build the rapport and the relationship with the person. Because you can take bring all the technology into the world. At the end of the day, it's relationships that result mm-hmm. in 
people actually trusting people enough to take their advice. So, of so course, people have to build on their soft skills then to yeah, I mean, thrive in that kind of we, world. We would do our best to hire people who have those kind of outgoing personalities who are not afraid to tell somebody, you know, this is what you need to do, but have the intelligence, the emotional intelligence particularly, to understand people that you can't tell people constantly. Mm. You can't give unsolicited advice. You have to do it in partnership. But absolutely, like, we embrace whatever technology changes come along. It's really, really important for us to do so. Okay, great. Perfect place to leave it. Brian Caulfield, VC Investor, and Lisa Holt, Managing Director of CPL. Thank you so much for being with us. And don't go anywhere because, of course, we'll be back to you in just a few minutes for the one to watch, the who or what they have their eye on in business this week. Joe presents All In, together with AIB, backing Irish business. Now, my next guest wants to completely reimagine what data privacy looks like. He's just landed a seed round of more than €3 million Euro for his Dublin-based startup Evervault, and he made it onto the Forbes 30 under 30 list with more than a decade to spare. It's Shane Curran. So, Shane, welcome to All In, and congratulations on the recent funding, first and foremost. Cheers, thanks for having me. Can I get you to start by explaining to us what is Evervault and why is it different to what's already out there? Uh, yeah, we're basically making data privacy really, really simple for people who are building mobile apps or web applications. Um, and instead of, it, instead of it being a problem that compliance and, and privacy teams are looking after, we're making it a core feature of people who are building their, pro- their, their products. Because um, you know, if you want to integrate it from day one, which is where we think the thing should be going, and that's the way the market's shifting, the toolkit just really sucks. So if you want to bake it in from day one, the tools aren't there and we're building those tools. Why do you think that is? Because obviously this is a huge established industry, but it took someone like yourself coming along and seeing a need that wasn't being met. Why is it not already baked in from day one? Because um, I think there's kind of these perverse incentives from a lot of kind of larger companies that are selling to enterprises where they have, you know, a support contractor and SLA for, um, you know, some kind of small part of the cybersecurity problem. But it's a much trickier kind of long-term play to provide the tools to the developers because obviously it takes a lot longer for those developers to build something meaningful and kind of grow and, and push them up market like that. Um, so that it's it kind of, a, a dual thing in terms of the business side and then um, on the kind of tech side as well. Um, a lot of the work that we're doing has only really existed in academia up until now. Um, so it's sort of a matter of interpreting those kind of academic papers and making them usable. And is this something you always wanted to do? Um, yeah, I mean, I've always really been interested in privacy and solving that problem in general. Um, so like as a company, our mission is to make data privacy simple and accessible for all. So everything we work on is sort of based around that kind of um, that kind of mission, I guess. Um, I guess I started off when I was doing research in, in secondary school on kind of the more technical or, or mathematical areas of the problem. Uh, then I woke up the next day uh, after after kind of uh, doing the Young Scientist itself, uh, woke up the next day with about 20 or 30 emails in my inbox from companies kind of saying, uh, we struggle to protect customer data. Can you turn your research into a product and sell it to us? Um, so kind of spent a lot of time kind of iterating on the idea from there. Um, and I kind of, it's, it's spun out from that. Obviously, it's fantastic to have won the Young Scientist Award and you're already on a high from that, I'm sure. But there must be um, a separate and, and, and distinct kind of confidence, confidence boost that comes from 20 or 30 emails from people already in established businesses looking for your product the next day. How did that make you feel? Yeah, for sure. Like, I, th- I think the, the big thing is that all these academic projects are really, really interesting. But mm-hmm. if they only kind of live their lives in you know, an A4 piece of paper that only academics read, then great, it might make a big contribu- contribution to academia. But if no one can use it in, in production or, or to solve their actual problem, then I think that, that's sort of a failure. Um, and I think the best way to get that sort of those novel ideas and that research into the hands of people that need it is to start a company. So um, it was nice to kind of start. Um, 
But I had always kind of at the back of my mind decided that if I was doing some kind of new research, I'd make sure that it was practical and mm. kind of pragmatic because a lot of the time these things aren't. Mm. So then did you bake that into your uh, project for the Young Scientist from day one, the fact that you wanted this to have legs to go beyond the competition? Or was it a light bulb moment when you got those emails? Um, I kind of baked it in. I mean, I think for the Young Scientist itself, it was it was very academic. But when I was designing it, I was always kind of thinking about, you know, kind of six months to a year in advance when I was kind of starting up the company. And then even then on the tech front, I was thinking kind of 10 or 20 years in advance mm. um, about, you know, how people are going to use this in the future. So it was definitely, it was definitely sort of a, a variable that came into play. Um, and I, I never really forgot about it. And obviously today I'm still working on it. So um, I never kind of never let it go. So that was about two years ago. What's happened since to get you to where you are now? Uh, I did my leaving cert. So that was, that was okay. a nice start. Um, that would have been so in... It's a small minor inconvenience in the yeah. middle of it all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, it was, it was good fun as well. So um, no, I enjoyed school and everything else. So uh, it was kind of nice to live the life of a normal 17 or 18 year old at the time as well. Um, yeah, since there, since since then, kind of went to college for three days, decided it wasn't for me, um, and that you know things were going really well with Evervault, and I kind of really believed in it, so I decided to kind of bite the bullet mm-hmm. um, and leave college there, um, and basically work at Evervault full time. So things have been going great. Um, the new funding round is sort of a nice boost in confidence, and uh, you know gives us the tools and kind of the the pathway to kind of expand outwards and and get people using the using the product. And that brief stint in college, three days, I think you said, um, was that just to kind of satisfy yourself or maybe your parents see if it was for you or did you kind of already know going into that that you probably wouldn't Um, stick with it? It was partially because it was kind of too, you know, if if you're doing the leaving cert, it's kind of too easy to go to college because Mm. you kind of do your CAO and then all of a sudden you get the offer and you're kind of automatically in college. So I kind of went, I was like, okay, I'll give this thing a try. Um, Maybe there was an element of satisfying my parents in there a little bit, Mm. but, um, you know, all my friends were going and I decided that was kind of the normal thing to do, but I kind of went for a while. Well, by a while, I mean three days. And then kind of realized, okay, maybe this isn't for me. Um, but uh, I enjoyed it. It's just, mm. uh, I think the way things lined up, I would much rather, um, I, I would much rather work on Evervault. And what did your parents say? When you... um, they were very supportive. I mean, I think they were, they're kind of just asking, like, are you sure? Um, mm. But once I said it was sure, and I kind of explained the reasoning behind it, they're like, okay, it makes sense. And they were going to really argue with that. So, um, but I had always kind of had this at the back of my mind. I mean, I'd even tried to, at one point, drop out of secondary school to work on right. um, to work on a couple of previous I'd ideas. Say that went down well. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, no, they they uh, they weren't exactly supportive of that for the right reasons. I think um, finishing secondary school is uh, an important part. I'd, I would say. Um, but yeah, I know I'd, I'd always kind of known that I was going to start a company at some point or another, and I just really couldn't wait any longer at that point. And you had started what two companies I think before Evervault. Tell us about those. Um, yeah, the first one I launched in my last year of primary school. Um, As you do. Yeah, exactly. I was very bored. Um, so that was a system for libraries to keep track of their books automatically. So instead of a you know a school having to hire a librarian or something or using these really old dated systems, they just basically sent a teacher around or even a student with a smartphone. They took a picture of the, the barcode in the back of the book using the camera, went off to the internet and pulled in all the book's information automatically. So you could catalog a library in you know, a couple of hours as opposed to a couple of weeks. Um, we made that really easy. Um, so that was a nice start that had kind of two angles to it. It had the kind of scientific research angle um, and entered that into the, the young scientists as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it had the, the kind of commercial angle too. Um, again, going back to the thing about getting it into the hands of people that needed it. So um, there was a lot of kind of traction around that. I think there's still about 3,000 people using it to this day. So um, it's solving a problem. And what about the other company then in the middle? Um, uh, yeah, I, I took a stab at this thing called Velodrome, which mm-hmm. was kind of like a 
point-to-point deliveries within a city, kind of like a, you know, if you had a package you wanted to get from one side of the uh, one side of Dublin to another mm-hmm. in an hour, you open the app, press a button, and someone showed up at your door. Um, so the tech was great and it really worked. It's just the the unit economics didn't really make sense, um, and that's pretty challenging when you're in secondary school trying to figure out how you manage a network of you know delivery drivers and customers. And um, it was a fun little side project, but um, I kind of neglected it because. Uh, School took over. School took over, yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. And now that you've got your funding, seven figures uh, led by, by Sequoia, among others, what's the plan there? Tell me what Evervault looks like in 2021. Yeah, I mean... 2025 t- even. Yeah, t- t- 2025. I mean, I, I think we'd like to just be working and, and be moving a whole lot closer to our mission of just getting data privacy being baked into products from day one. Um, that's kind of the most important thing for us. Like, we don't really care too much about the economic metrics that go around that. It's just more so about, are we making a difference and are we kind of focusing on that as opposed to, you know, worrying about, you know, what our customer acquisition cost is or something like that. Um, But the funding kind of allows us to hire a world-class team in in Dublin um, because I think that's possible now and the talent pool is here. Um, Get that team up and running, kind of work on our product, get people using it and kind of uh, make sure we're doing the right thing as opposed to just sort of, you know, throwing money at the problem and, and figuring that out. And not only is the capital you know, a, a nice amount to kind of get things moving, but the, the backers themselves have you know, very strong networks and um, I couldn't really ask for, for a better set of investors. And tell us about that journey to get the funding. I think I read somewhere that you had said, uh, you know, you got on a plane, went to the US and before you knew it, you were sitting down with the Irish mafia of Silicon Valley and, and having these really important meetings. Did it happen that fast? Or I know it can be a very grueling process for some people. Yeah, pretty much. I, I basically, uh, in the Easter during the Easter holidays of sixth year, I basically just hopped on a plane to San Francisco and decided to kind of cold email people. And um, yeah, the goodwill there is pretty strong. So mm-hmm. uh, before long, I kind of arrived on the the, mon- or the Sunday and then on the Monday, I had a couple of meetings that morning uh, and then things kind of spun out from there with people making introductions and, and whatever else. So um, I kind of got hooked on it from that point. Um, Went home, had to finish up school, uh, but I actually went back to San Francisco just before the leaving cert. Um, I think I was on a plane back from, from San Francisco about 12 hours or 14 hours before English paper one, which right. was a, a pretty terrible idea in hindsight, but um, it was fun, so I can't really complain. Um, and then, yeah, I guess the, th- through those trips and, and sort of over time, the network kind of expanded and expanded before um, I was down on Sand Hill Road meeting with these kind of tier one VCs. Mm-hmm. Okay, that must have been, yeah quite a shock, you know, from cold cold emailing to suddenly meeting them in person like that. Yeah, it's crazy how quick these things happen. Mm. And also just for me, having read about these guys from, you know, from when I was a kid, actually, as weird as that sounds, mm. um, you know, I'd always kind of aspire to be down there and, you know, being, you're driving down Sand Hill Road where, you know, all these VC firms are located, you're kind of thinking like, wow, you know, this is where, this is where it all happens. So mm. um, it was definitely pretty nice. But yeah, the reality is these people are all human anyway, and you're kind of meeting them. They're the same as any other VC, um, just with a stronger brand name and, and better brand recognition. But um, yeah, it was exciting for sure. I'd be I'd be lying if I said there wasn't a bit of a, an adrenaline rush. And more than three million in funding uh, pre-launch and pre-release. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a huge investment financially, but it's also a huge investment of confidence in you that you can deliver. Like what, what do you think, what do you put that down to, the fact that you, you got that investment from them so early? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's part of it. I think the the other thing is just how big the problem that we're solving is. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's it's obviously a massive problem today. You look at all these companies being hacked and all these sort of data breaches that are happening. So clearly, people are thinking about it. It's just as I said earlier on, the the toolkit is is just really terrible. So you think it was the concept then more than anything? Yeah, I think it was the concept in the market. I think you know, obviously, these things kind of play into it. But um, you know, I don't want to be deluded and kind of think that it was entirely based on based on me. But mm-hmm. um, you know, I think it's it's what we're working on and kind of what we're working towards. Mm. And, but was that a, you and especially your age was, you know, 
I hate to bring up your age, yeah. but there's no way around the fact that you're 19. Do you think that was a factor as well, um, that they were so impressed impressed with you in a way they wouldn't been wouldn't have been if you'd come along with the same idea at 40, 45, uh, 50? I think it's I think it's a novelty factor in some ways. It kind of sure. gets the first meeting, yeah. but I think you know uh, capital is kind of blind to, to age, and mm. you know, capital doesn't sort of you know, set preferences on people's backgrounds or whatever. It's kind of like if there's a market opportunity there, they'll invest in whoever the best team or the best company to, to work towards that is. Mm. Um, so, you know, I think it was maybe a factor, but I don't think it was the, the ultimate reason they decided to invest in the end. And is that something you get a lot, she says, as she has just brought it up herself, <laughs> but is, is it something you get a lot in interviews, meetings? Oh, you're just 19. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'd say more so more so in Ireland than anywhere else because right. I think this whole kind of expression that, you know, you can't be a profit in your own land is... Is fairly accurate, you know. Mm-hmm. In, in Ireland, people always see you as, you know, oh, you were that twelve-year-old once who, um, you know, who missed a tackle on a rugby pitch or whatever, and it's kind of hard to escape that. Mm. Um, but I think that's just a natural thing. So when you go over there, it's really kind of you're, you're fending for yourself, and they don't really take background into account. Um, but you know, I think over, over time, you know, I'm gr- growing older at a rate of a second per second. So um, just like anyone else, I'll, I'll get there eventually. Like but yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, you can't always mm-hmm. be the kind of um, you know, the kid who's working on cool stuff. It's, uh, you know, right now we're, we're building a meaningful company and kind of working towards solving that problem. And in general, then, do you think that there's more of an element of imposter syndrome for uh, our Irish founders, especially young Irish founders here, than there would be uh, in the States? Because you mentioned that, you know, it's, it's not such yeah. a factor over there. We're so small. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think it's, it's a combination of imposter syndrome and tall poppy syndrome in some ways. Mm. Um, I think people get too fixated on, you know, the capital amounts involved and people, you know, they'll look at kind of the, the net worth of someone, even though it could be an entirely like illiquid net worth where no, no one can actually sell that or, you know, it's completely intangible. Mm. And I think people are doing great. But, um, you know, when you're kind of running a company like this, it's, you know, the reality is very, very different to what the headlines might make it seem. Um, and also, I think people people in Ireland just don't get the exposure to kind of these massive successes that you get over in, in the Bay Area. So, um, you know, people don't ask me for advice often, rightly so. But when they do, um, I just kind of tell them to just just hop on EI one four seven, which is the uh, the Dublin to San Francisco flight, and kind of just soak it up because um, it's very very hard to to kind of experience it anywhere else. And mm-hmm. you know, it's it's kind of how you how you learn and adapt to, to what advice. building a world class company looks like as opposed to a you know a national company. And so you want to go from three employees to 15 in the next year or so, right? Yeah. How are you going to do that? What's the plan? Um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're not in kind of a direct rush. We're kind of, you know, I think a lot of companies have these kind of plans made out. It's like, you know, we're hiring two people this month, two people the next mm-hmm. month. Um, you know, we feel that that's kind of around the level it'll take to kind of get our product perfect uh, perfect, and getting people using it in, in the right level. Um, so, you know, when people come to us and we're like, oh, you know, I think they're, they're the right person to bring on board, we'll bring them on board. But um you know, I think it's it's important to not rush into those decisions, particularly in the early days, because you know those those ten people or or fifteen people that you bring on initially kind of really define where the company goes long term. So um, we want to make sure not to screw that up. But um, yeah, I think in the next year that's where that's where we'll end up. So a lot of pressure then on those first ten hires. What will you be looking for, and what kind of candidate will impress you, and why? Um, I think people with a, a very broad world outlook. Um, I think you know, as as Irish people, we kind of tend to be a bit more extrospective. Um, which is, is probably the right thing considering we're, we're a small country. So, um, you know, I think that particular skill or, or quality is, is easy enough to find. But, um, you know, these people are, are mostly technical. Our product is, is very technical. So we take that as a baseline. But um, kind of engineering talent, that's very product-centric and product-focused because, um, you know, a lot of the multinationals here, they do a lot of technical work, but there's very few people working on those projects that are making kind of a direct impact on the product direction of the company. So, um, you know, we think that the unique part about us is that we're, 
uh, kind of bringing a taste of what things might be like in the Bay Area to Dublin and kind of letting people focus on, you know, building the product itself. Um, that's a really, really fun challenge. So um, I think you kind of, people naturally gravitate towards that if they're that way inclined. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems to be working out so far. And as this show is very much focused this week on the working week, what will the working week look like at Evervault? Um, oh, a little bit of everything. I think, um, you know, the reality is an early stage startup, people are doing everything from, you know, writing code, writing code to, to cleaning the toilets. So mm-hmm. um, a little bit of that stuff. Um, I'd say, um, you know, uh, probably probably sort of mornings people are working on um, kind of what are we doing for the day, this is sort of where the, where the product's going, keeping a close eye on, um, you know, where the market's going and, and all that kind of thing. But then the rest of the day is just kind of um, hanging out, writing code um, mm-hmm. and getting it out there and getting people using it. Um, and then there's a large kind of time concentration as well on just speaking with the customers, making sure that they really, really love using it because, um, you know, we're not hiring a sales team right now. We just think that a great product sells itself and we kind of believe in, in product-led growth. So uh, making sure we're really, really kind of, um, you know, in, intensely focused on where that's going is going to be um, it's going to be the majority of our efforts for now. Okay, big, huge year ahead for you and we'll uh, check back in with you probably early in 2020 and see how you do. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. But um, yeah, it's going to be fun. Thanks, Shane. Cheers, thanks. Joe presents All In, together with AIB, backing Irish business. A truly inspiring trailblazer there, Shane Kern from Evervault. Now I'm back in studio with Brian Caulfield, VC investor, and Lisa Holt, managing director of CPL. So you're one to watch for this week. The who or what in business have caught your eye, and of course, why? So for me, I think the one to watch will be embracing a flexible workforce, um, a blended workforce. Um, Clients need brilliant people really fast Um, and I think the ideal scenario where we're probably going to end up going is the blended workforce being your you'll have your freelance freelance and your daily contractors you'll have your flexible staff temps Mm -hmm. you'll have your people working from home and you'll have your permanent staff and I think that is the best way to bring innovation diversity inclusion and a really healthy productive workforce into the, into business today. Okay, great. Brian, what about you? So I'm going to cheat and reheat a, a one to watch from a few weeks back. That's WeWork. You um, love talking about WeWork, Brian. I do, I do. Uh, uh, but the story has What's moved on uh, so much since we talked about it before. Firstly, the CEO, Adam Neumann, is gone. Um, But the company is now in desperate need of more money. The word on the street is that they need to raise more money by next month. Um, And that will be not millions, but literally billions. So I think there's a, you know, a real non-zero chance that that WeWork could go bust within a couple of weeks. So it's uh, it's definitely one to keep an eye on. And if WeWork goes down, what's the implication then for the rest of, of the the rest of that sector? So I don't think there are any kind of broad implications for tech because fundamentally we work is not a tech business. But for the but, office spaces but, model that they have. So so um, I I don't think it has broad implications for most of the other players in the space. I mean, if I look at businesses here in Ireland like Iconic Offices. 
I, I think they have a solid business model mm -hmm. and I don't think that, that they're going to be directly threatened by this. Um, you know, there are other large players in the space that have sensible business models, you know, sensible mm -hmm. approaches to the deployment of capital. And I think I think they'll survive because there is real demand for flexible working spaces. You know, it's, it's, it's not that there isn't a, a genuine need being served here, you know. But in terms of, um, is it valuations then we can expect to see a change in? Or? So I, I think in, in what we're certainly going to see is firstly, you know, big trouble for the SoftBank Vision Fund. You know, right. I think there is a real question mark over whether they will be able to raise a second fund or certainly on the scale that they would have uh, have wished to do. Um, and I think that will definitely have implications for other very large funds. I think we're probably seeing the, the kind of the end of days for the, those mega funds. Okay. And I think we will also see uh, valuations, especially for, uh, for, for kind of consumer-focused businesses. I, I think we'll see them come back into more of an alignment with, with the fundamentals, the underlying fundamentals of the business, yes. Um, I think in terms of, you know, enterprise SaaS businesses, I don't think we're going to see any major cor correction. I think those businesses are, broadly speaking, reasonably sensibly valued as things stand at mm. the moment. So I think it'll be it'll be isolated to you know a, a relatively small sector. So a lot of pain for a SoftBank's fund in the next while. A lot of pain. Okay. A lot of pain. One to watch for sure. Yeah, I mean that uh, that is another one to watch. I mean they also have big investments in a couple of other businesses that haven't gone you know fantastically well. U Uber being one one example. Um, you know, I mean, I think there's a really strong example in the case of Uber to say that they need to kind of cut all of the ancillary businesses, you know, stop dabbling mm. in uh, in driverless cars, focus on the netting and discover what the right price is for the core product. Because, again, the core product adds value, you know. Uber is a good service, which is valued by its consumers, and they just need to find out what the right price for that product is. Okay, well, thank you so much for that, Brian and Lisa. And thanks, of course, to you for watching, and thanks to AIB for backing the show. Now, next week is the debut of the very first all-in live show in the Chocolate Factory on the 29th of October on Kings Inn Street in Dublin, where we'll be looking at business and entrepreneurship in 2020 and beyond. And if you'd like to be there, you can find details on how to get tickets on the pinned tweet of our dedicated Twitter account at allin underscore business. And in the meantime, you will, of course, find us on every other platform using the hashtag allinbusiness. And do hit subscribe so that you never miss a show. Joe presents All In, together with AIB, backing Irish business.